Welcome to the What's Your Revolution show, the show for men and the people who love them, where we discuss how men can find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corpru. What's up, revolutionaries? I hope everybody is doing well this week. We are getting over our hangover, our essence hangover here in New Orleans. The city quiets down. And we have the ability to think through who we are again in life. Shout out to Rachel Graham for all that she does in the world, for making sure that Charles Corporal can make it here and do what he does. Shout out to my man, Jazzo, the man behind the wheel of steel. <laughs> yeah, who makes this station go. I appreciate you, Jazz. I remember as a kid, everybody, you know, thinking about all the things that I wanted to do in my life. My mother and father were both educators. So I thought at one time I wanted to be a lawyer. I'm from Virginia Beach, and so I would hear the jets going over the house all the time. So I thought about maybe I want to be a fighter pilot, right? All of these various jobs that I, I could take on. But at no point in time did I ever think that I wanted to be a rocket scientist, right? Who does that? How, you know, growing up in Virginia Beach, you don't think about being a rocket scientist. You think about going to the playground. You know what I'm saying? You think about being a lawyer. You think about being an educator. No one in the world said, you know what, little Chucky? You could be a rocket scientist. But somehow this brother next to me figured out that, hey, <laughs> I could be a rocket scientist. So I thought I would bring him on the show with me. Howard Conyers, how you doing, brother? Good. How you doing, Charles? Good. Thank you for having me on your show today. <laughs> oh no, no, no doubt, man. This is this is an honor. This is going to be the best show ever. I think I hope so. I don't know about the best show, but I want to be up there <laughs> uh, because I put it on Facebook that the Howard, the Doctor Howard Conyers was coming on my show, and I got the most likes ever. Right? I said New Orleans. Guess who's coming? And all of these people came out of the woodwork, like, Oh, Howard. <laughs> <laughs> I love Howard, all of these people. So you must be like the man. I'm not. I'm just trying to live. <laughs> I think you're the man, brother, and I appreciate you. So we're going to get to it, all right? Okay, whatever. <laughs> Howard, what's your revolution, brother? My revolution these days is trying to make sure it's what I do. I made an honor to people who came before me. Mm, and make that. sure people understand what contributions people that look like us contributed to society. In America. Right, right. And and we need to do more of that because we some sometimes we lose that. We even lose that within ourselves, that this understanding that there were people who paved the way for us to do this. For you and I to sit in this station to talk about the things that we talk about, there were people who came before us. Most definitely. I would not be where I am without those people who sacrificed for me to be here today. Yeah, no doubt. And, and particularly <laughs> particularly being a rocket scientist. Right? <laughs> I'm literally sitting next to a rocket scientist. That's what they say. Yeah, that's what they say. So knowing your revolution, brother, tell me a little bit about how you got to this place. You know, what was it like? Who? Where were you, where are you from? What was it like growing up? And what was the impetus for you to say, I want to be a rocket scientist? So my beginnings, I'm a country kid from South Carolina, Paxville. I grew up in Paxville. Some people, I went to school in Manning. I was raised on a family farm. Right. Where I lived. While I was on the farm, what I learned a lot about life was math and science, and that laid the foundation for me become a rocket, become a rocket scientist. Really? Yeah. So, so what do you mean, math and science? What was going on at on home on that country farm? Because I think my mother grew up on a farm, man, and she would always say, you know, coming up, we had to go out and and, and get the eggs and and get the crops. My grandmother had to 
you know, basically go out in the garden every day and get the food for dinner. So, like, raising the crops, raising the garden, maintaining the family garden. We also, like, I known for cooking barbecue. I do this thing with barbecue a little bit. And right. so we used to butcher our own animals. And so you get a real way of understanding biology when you butcher an animal. Um, also, my father farmed, so I got to saw, like, commercial agriculture. I got to saw, like, how GMOs came on the scene with Roundup Ready Corn. Wow. But then my family also had this heirloom variety of sweet potatoes that we grew as well using a very traditional method. And so you really got to see the spectrum of traditional as well as advanced scientific stages of producing crops. Man. So unpack that a little bit more. So you said your family produced its own heirloom sweet potatoes? Yeah, the sweet potato, my father been growing it for about 40 years now. It was passed down in my community. We kind of believe the sweet potato, I kind of believe the sweet potato been passed down since slavery. Right. And the community really enjoys the sweet potato. So we preserve it. We keep the seed going every year. And it's something we share with our community. I got you. So when you say heirloom, I just, just so everybody understands, what does that mean? I th- is that a type of sweet potato or this is just a, the family recipe to how, you know, how we come out, how, how our sweet potato comes out? No, it's actually, this is a variety, but we don't really know the name of the variety. <laughs> the variety was passed down to from another older farmer in the community and, we didn't know the name. All we referred to was an old-time sweet potato. Okay. And we just kept the seed going every year. We didn't try to mix it with anything. We try to keep crop. We keep previous seed, previous sweet potatoes from the previous year's crop, and we planted that year after year to oh, keep wow. it going. So my mother, you know, and I'm a sweet potato connoisseur. I don't know if you ain't had these. I've clearly <laughs> I have <laughs> not had these, my brother. But, I, yeah, I'm a sweet potato connoisseur, and um, – my mother has been calling um, a type of sweet potato Hayman potato. Hyman. Hi- yeah. The Hyman sweet potato out of Virginia. Right. I- exactly. And so every time I go home, she will cook, cook you know. It's like this a type. white sweet potato. It's like a white sweet potato. I- exactly. It's got a story history. Yeah. And, and so I was like, well, I don't want this Hayman. You know, I want that. that sweet, you might want that sweet potato. But wait a minute. But Hold you on. want my, mine is probably a little better. <laughs> I got you. You should have brought some with you here, brother. They are, they've been in the fields right now. I got you. But what I realized now, my mother had been trying to get me to eat this type of sweet potato, this um, Hyman sweet potato, for the longest time. I was like, I don't want it. So we were out in Virginia Beach having dinner one night, and it said organic sweet potato on the menu okay so my mother was like what is this organic sweet potato right it was a hymen sweet potato that's what it was but they call calling it organic and you know so we had i was like wow this is great so now that's all i eat really well, <laughs> yeah just because it's organic doesn't necessarily mean no 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 I, I, but yeah but it's white <laughs> it's white yeah and it's, it's very sweet oh no it's very sweet yeah, yeah. i understand it's very sweet i'm very familiar with that particular seed it has a very interesting story right i wish the sweet potatoes that my family was growing, it had a name to it. One day it might be called Conyers Family they, Sweet That's potato. what I, I was thinking. You were reading my mind, brother. So living on the farm, right, in South Carolina, in Paxton, South Carolina, you're dealing with math and science, growing the crops. How did this then spark you into saying, I'm going to go to school and study? What What is the study? So, I mean, my love of math and science was why I studied engineering. I didn't know what an engineer was until, like, my 11th grade year. I went to an engineering program at Auburn University, minority introduction to engineering. And then after that, I, since I grew up on a farm, I went to school on a USDA 1890s scholarship to study agriculture and biosystems engineering, or some people call bioenvironmental engineering. And while I was there, I loved math and science so much, I said I wanted to go back and get my Ph.D. while there. And the reason I went to get a Ph.D., it wasn't necessarily about the math and science then. I wanted to be able to eventually teach my peers. I realized some of my professors didn't have the 
practical application of the theory, and I right. thought that would make it a lot easier to study when I was at North Carolina A&T State University. Wow, wow. So this, this, you know, because y- you think about that now, being able to learn everything you learn on the farm, being able to use living on the farm to be able to go to school, right, yeah. USDA grant, full ride, full ride yeah. at Auburn. No, at North Carolina A&T. At North Carolina A&T. North Carolina, North Carolina A&T. I spent a lot of time at North Carolina A&T when I was in college. <laughs> I, I can only imagine. Yes, I did. Had a good time. Good time. Shout out to the brothers at A&T. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm not even mad at the brothers. Yeah, I, yeah. I know a lot of good brothers over at Musi, even though I crossed Bay Epsilon. Right, right. Exa- exactly. And so college has that opportunity. So I know you spent a lot of time in the lab, a lot of time with good folks who said, you know what, let's push you a little further. You go, you go and get your Ph.D. And the reason why you get your Ph.D. is that you want to be able to practice theory. I want to be, I want really my classmates to understand how this theory applies to real life. So give me an example of what you learned and how you've been able to put it out in real life, you know, from a scientific perspective. I mean, I haven't, like, did it yet. Where I, my initial intent was to better teach students, to okay. come back and teach toward my end of the career. Right. But what I am doing now is I, gotcha. I want to show you, like, how everyday life is STEM. So, everyday life is STEM. Like, you may not think you're a science, math or science person, but when you go to that stove or that kitchen or that barbecue grill, you implement a lot of scientific and mathematical principles to execute to get a final product. I got you. I got you. So what he's saying is now based on the science and agricultural information and knowledge and uh, research, you've been able now to move this into the cooking aspect. Yeah, sort of like a food science. A food science, right? Not a foodie, but a food science. I mean, some people might say I'm a foodie <laughs> or foodie maker, but it's actually a food science. So I- I- explain the processes now, what you're, try- what you're trying to do with the knowledge that you have gleaned and, and, and really taking that scientific aspect to food and how it now it is flourishing and how communities can use it to flourish. So one of the things I want people to understand is, like, when I do something cooking a pig, there are so many genetics in pigs. There's different types of pigs. Different pigs have different characteristics, such as fat profiles. But even even if you say you don't eat pork, some, if you ever have heart disease or heart problem, a lot of the pig heart is closer to the human's heart, which is surprising. A lot of people don't realize that. Right. And so better make replacement valves from actually uh, human part from hog parts. You. You hear something to say about that. Right, right. You're listening to the What's Your Revolution show, broadcast live on WBOK, 1230 a.m., simulcast on WHRV, 102.3 on Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Sitting here talking to Howard Conyers, the rocket scientist now, rocket scientist who has his own show talking about how to be a pit master. We're going to get to that in a second, brother. But you're talking about food from a scientific perspective and how being able to take the parts of different animals and, and the cooking methods, right? And so how are you promoting that now? What are you doing in this aspect to say, okay, there's a scientific aspect to everything I do. How does that, how does that play out in your everyday life? So now it's playing out in this new opportunity I'm doing, PBS Digital Studios and Louisiana Public Broadcasting on a new show that I'm hosting and co-producing called Nourish. 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 <laughs> so that is how it's playing out in real time where I can really tell you, like, something as simple as barbecue sauce. It's a scientific principle behind science, barbecue sauce. Can you make a gluten-free uh, barbecue sauce, brother? We can if you want it. Yeah, I need a gluten-free. I, I need a gluten-free, it sugar-free. It probably have a lot of vinegar in it. <laughs> a gluten-free, sugar-free barbecue sauce. Can we make that? Is that is that real? 
it'll be hard without the sugar though. Oh man, I've been trying to find something, man. Uh, Trader Joe's. Trying to eat it all. I mean, I cook uh, chicken. I cook. I, I'm really good at braising and barbecuing chicken thighs. We can figure. Oh, I think we got something for okay, you. Okay, yeah, yeah. I think we can figure out something. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, don't get me wrong. You're on the show to help to help me out. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I need to be able to cook better uh, to eat healthy. You know, you can't be fifty year old, fifty years old like myself. And um, <laughs> I mean, what you hitting on? Oh. No, don't don't worry about Rachel. <laughs> what you're hitting on is a really true point. So I really like in my walk with growing up on the farm. Like one of the things I really did was eat healthy. Growing up, we ate healthy because we ate seasonally and fresh products. And one of the things now I want people to do is eat fresh, eat local, and something sustainable, so they know where they know their farmer. That's really important. Right, right, exactly. And, and let's pull back on that one because I want to talk about that in a, a moment. But let's talk more about your show. Because I think that that is the the biggest aspect of uh, our conversation today. How did you get involved with PBS? Right? <laughs> what what was the story? Like, hey, I'm a rocket scientist, but I'm really good at barbecuing. Is that what happened? So, no, it's interesting how the whole played out, how this all played out. So I went to Denver last year for an event called Slow Food Nation to give a history of barbecue talk, cooking whole hogs. Then when I got back from Denver, while I was in the audience in Denver, this producer came up to me and said they wanted to do a documentary on me. Fast forward to like December of 2017, they, they asked me to do a documentary and they shot it. And it was just kind of my story about being a whole hall pit master from South Carolina, as well as being a rocket scientist and whatever else I do in the community. <laughs> and what happened was the people who, when they did a documentary, the people at PBS Digital Studios really liked what they saw on camera for my camera presence. And they said, would you consider hosting it? I said only on one condition that I get to go out in the field and interview and talk to my the people I'm talking about about food culture. So basically, it, it, it's almost like um, our friend Anthony Bourdain, right? You know, sad, sad, sad. You know, to hear about his passing, right? But he says in one of his one of his documentaries that it was just one step. He was one step away, right? And it was really interesting because he was he was writing food blogs. And he was trying to send them to the New York Times and different things. And his mother said, why don't you send it to the New Yorker, right? Because his articles were actually were not getting picked up. Did you, have you heard this story? I, I haven't heard the story. Right. But I- so, his, so, um, so his articles were not being picked up, and he was actually getting ready to stop writing these articles. And his mother said, why don't you send it to the New Yorker? And he said, you know what? I'm just going to send it. And then he didn't hear anything. For a while, and he got a he got a phone he got a phone call he got a phone call and said hey we're gonna we're gonna print your story uh, his food blog and after that the phone just kept ringing and he kept writing and kept writing and eventually you know Anthony Bourdain came became Anthony Bourdain right? wow what was the name of the show Parts Unknown Parts Unknown right it, exactly so it, it it sounds like right he, here's this opportunity here's this rocket scientist and you know, one step away, and you found your step. We hope so. <laughs> I don't know. No, we we uh, we found we found. It seems like you found your step. So, what was the documentary about? It was just basically about my life story. I've been cooking before I even became a rocket scientist. I was cooking whole hog barbecue in South Carolina, that, which is hard to believe. I've been cooking barbecue for over thirty years. Man, you're like 12 years old, brother. <laughs> I know I've been around it since I was able to walk around fire safely. Right. <laughs> can you ever walk around fire safely? In South Carolina, you can. Yeah, you can. As long as you don't burn yourself so your mom don't get yeah. mad. So just so everybody understands, right, because you, you've said it a number of times, whole hog 
Yeah, I'm right. saying I'm saying whole hog because I'm out of South Carolina. If I was in South Carolina, I would just say barbecue, and people would know I was talking about whole hog. So literally, <laughs> so literally, Howard, you're saying you are barbecuing the entire pig. Yes, the entire pig. Right. So okay, tell us a little bit about this process. I mean, how far? I'm going to give you the short version. Give us the short version. Because I mean, there, there are people out here like whole hog. Well, first thing, I, the easy way to do it is go watch this show on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> that give you the, the skinny of it. So, YouTube backslash PBS nourish.com. There I mean, we go. Nourish. Right. And um, that give you the score of how to cook a whole hog. But we used to kill a hog as a family, as a community. Then we'll butterfly, get it ready for the pit. We'll start a fire. Men will come around. It's not to sound sexist or anything, but. Barbecue generally was a men's tradition because it was outside. And we would butterfly it and we would put it on the pit. And we, 12, 13 hours later, we would hope to have barbecue to serve for the family. So butterflying, but, butterflying is... It's laying it flat. Right. It's laying, it's laying it flat. Without breaking the back skin. Okay. All right. I'm sure that you can Google this and see a butterfly. Yeah, you can see it. I mean, I, I, right down the middle. Right down yeah. the middle, right down the backbone. Right, right. Interesting. Okay. And so. Very you, old process. Though. So before you even thought about being a rocket scientist, you have been a whole hog pit master. I don't know if I was a pit master at the time. That pit master is a whole new word. Growing up, I didn't even know what the word pit master was. So what, what does that mean now to be a pit master? Like everybody's coming to you. You're like the. Guru of pit master. I mean, I understand how to work with fire. <laughs> <laughs> I understand how to control heat. I know how to maintain temperature. I understand how to break an animal down. I also have patience. Barbecue teach you, teaches you a lot of patience. That's one thing that I don't, I don't have. Well, you can't cook barbecue if you don't no, have patience. Clearly, I don't cook not, barbecue. Like whole animals. You might cook you some Korean grill or something like that, <laughs> Korean barbecue or something. But if you That's got, easy. But if you don't have patience, you can't do barbecue. Hey, Charles, can I jump in and ask a question? Yes. So what my dad... We've had this conversation. My family is from not far from. About five miles from where I'm Yeah, my at. stepmom's family is five miles, but like my father's family is closer to the beach um, in Myrtle Beach. And um, so Howard and I had this conversation this weekend about my father. We bought our house in New Jersey, and like two weeks later, he came home with a. <laughs> a, a, a barrel load of bricks. I won't use the street colloquialism, but a barrel load of bricks and create and, and, and cinder blocks or something. Cinder blocks. Actually, he brought he had bricks. Oh yeah, bricks. Okay. Yeah, and and built a pit. Well, the first um, barbecue he did, he did a whole pig. The question I have for you, Howard, is: Can you give me a justification why my father took my favorite sleeping bag and wrapped it around the pig before he put it on the pit? To keep it cool. Yeah, see, that's keep not it cool. good enough because that was my sleeping bag. I'm like, where my sleeping bag? He go? needed something to keep it cool mm. until because he didn't want it to spoil, and so that sleeping bag would have served as insulation. I, you, you still needed that sleeping bag. At that time, I did. Hmm. I was so, 13. And we're back. Oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and we're back. So the show is a, a wonderful opportunity for you to highlight, for you to showcase. I think that's a better word. You going around and talking about food. 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 So it's not just about barbecue. It's it's definitely just not about barbecue. It's about food, culture, and science of the American South. And so it's important for me to really highlight different contributions of different groups of people. So a few weeks ago we went to Charleston, South Carolina, and I wanted to highlight the Gullah Geechee culture of South Carolina because that's important. I want people to understand, like, why we eat so much rice. I want to understand, like, where grits come from. Uh, we're looking at looking at uh, groups such as the Vietnamese, the Native Americans. Like, that's something I'm really interested in because the Native American story is not really shared a lot mm, no. in the food ways of the South. But they had a very influential 
aspect of Southern food. I, f- I find this food, culture, and science, and science in the American South. In the American why South. Is it so, why is that so important for it to be in the American South? So, first of all, I'm from the South, and I'm a little biased because I'm from the South. But the South is the heart and core of the United States. You, you wouldn't have the North, you wouldn't have the West, you wouldn't have the Midwest without the South. The South is the beginning of the United States of America. Right. The foodways of the, United, of the United States of America started in the American South. They had influences from the Caribbean, West Africa, and those things are important to consider because living in New Orleans, those things are definitely in the pot. Um, also, you have the Spanish, you have the French. And so being in the South is really where all this came together. I, I, I love that food. So what have you learned? Because you, you've been around now, and is the show still taping? Oh, the show is still taping. But so what I'll, I'll give you something I learned, right? And I think it is important for people to really get this in. So I, I did a show with Miss Leah Chase from the famous Dookie Chase restaurant. Right. Everybody needs and, to know who Leah Chase is. And, if you don't know, Google Dookie Chase. And spell so, it correctly. Spell D-O-O-K-Y. It. <laughs> and so... She has a famous dish called gumbo zerbs, and she corrected me on it. And it's like a, a gumbo made out of all greens. Really? Really. Why haven't you? And it's served one day that. a year. And it's only, it's the, is it Holy, Good Friday or Holy, the Holy Thursday? Thursday? Holy right. Thursday. Holy Thursday. We need to go to Holy Thursday next definitely, year. Definitely. Definitely. need to put it on the calendar. All right. But when she told me the connection to the Caribbean, she said it the same dish as Callaloo. Mm-hmm. And when you think about Callaloo, people are like, oh, especially in the diaspora. We sometimes we segregate ourselves, thinking we're not one of the same people. But in the diaspora, especially in the African diaspora, we are we have the same root. Most of us came from West Africa. We maybe stopped through the West Indies, or maybe stopped in South America, or maybe stopped in Central America. But then before we came to the United States, and, but the only thing different about once we're in the United States is our access to certain food ingredients. Right. That's the interesting. Our access to f- different food ingredients. If you take this back to slavery. Right, and what was given to our ancestors. Or what was brought. Right, or what was brought. So what do you mean by that, what was brought? Because imagine this. you got somebody take you away from your homeland, and you want to feed you. You're not going to eat something you're not familiar with. Right. So the slave ship captains knew they had to bring certain ingredients with them. So they wanted to bring rice. They wanted to bring the peas. So they wanted to make sure their cargo survive the journey by giving them wow. pro- by giving them give a little history lesson here brother exactly and so you think about that i want to go back the thinking about that how food science and culture food culture and science in the american south i have those historical roots right and how you know you think you get around the table with our people right what are we cooking right like you talk about when i go home my mother's got a pot of collard greens God. right we love always greens. right always my mother's got some Hyman potatoes, right? <laughs> Actually, Whole Foods calls them Hannah potatoes, right? They <laughs> won't be the same. I don't know if they will have them. Exactly. You know, and so it's, so it's very interesting. But those are staples. I mean, I grew up you know, stereotypically on fried chicken, right? <laughs> you know, my mom cooks chicken. You know, we... Well, that's a celebratory thing. It's not an everyday of the week type. Right. It, it, well, well... It happened. I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. How many different ways can you cook a chicken in a right, family? Right, right, exactly. But th- those are these Bakes, states. Dude. Right, right. And my mother taught me, so we think about the science here, Howard. My mother taught me how to fry chicken, right, how to make sure that my grease was hot. How do you do that? You didn't stick your hand in there. No, it had to come to a boil, right? It had to, it had to pop. It had to pop. It had to pop, right? It, you don't, you, right? And you couldn't have, a, like, old grease, 
No. Oh, no, 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 and no. don't mix chicken grease with and fish. fish grease. Oh, no. Right, right. right. I, I, exactly. And so that, that what I didn't realize is that what there was a science behind it. how long the chicken could be left in the grease. If I the crispier that I wanted the chicken, how was the? I never really thought about the science behind well, that. There's a lot of science there. Right, and the cult and the culture that actually goes along with the it. Culture. I mean, to me, cooking the food is one thing, but I get more enjoyment understanding the culture behind it and understanding the fellowship of people behind the food that we eat that i think that is so interesting because we we know as people of color we come together around food that's what we do that's what we do we come together around food we celebrate i'm going home to my family reunion this week and and what is the what is the friday night affair a fish fry fry. fry. did we have that conversation conversation yeah so a a fish fry fry. so all the people are gathering around and i don't know if it's going to you know be like the old country fish fry like when we had family reunion you know you had you had a fish pot you that that cast iron pot that cast iron pot brother and you know you're dipping the fish in was it a whole fish or was it uh, no, no, no. It was, it was whitefish. It was fillets. Yeah, see, down south, they just throw the whole fish the today where we are. They and, put and holes I think, in everything. And I think it's actually, um, it's an East Coast thing because in the south, celebra- celebration, it's fish on Friday, but that's back to the Catholic Church. But when you have the family reunion, it's a crawfish boil. Right. When you have, right. like, large gatherings of family. So it just all depends. Yeah, so, you know, I'm excited about going to going. Yeah, to I'm pretty sure y'all are going to have fillets, but <laughs> I'm not a fillet person. I'm really not a fillet person. You like the whole fish? I like whole fish. See, I like to go through the bones and everything. I'm, I'm, oh, really? Oh, yeah. I'm not a I'm, bone person. The flavor is there. We talked about the white bread thing. We oh, talked, you need, we, and you need a white bread. See, <laughs> we have fish. The reason Hush white puppies. bread is cool. Somebody who can't eat fish, if they choke on the bread, they, the bread's supposed to help get the bone out. Oh, really? Yeah. See, uh, all the things that I'm all, all the things that I'm learning here from the PBS star, um, how, Dr. Howard Commerce, PBS star of Nourish, as he sit here and schools us this week on food, culture, and science in American culture. And really, we've been talking about the culture aspect. I find it so amazing that me, the psychologist, hadn't really thought about, you know, in context, how food really plays out and how the culture really, for us, brings us together. So stay with us because we're going to keep this conversation going with Dr. Howard Kanye, star of PBS's digital uh, digital series nourish and we're going to talk more about you know his experiences and what it's like for you to be a part of this mastermind group all right check us out on the other side you listen to the what's your revolution show Welcome back to the What's Your Revolution show, sitting here with my good friend, Dr. Howard Conyers, as we talk about what it's like to cook a whole hog. <laughs> uh, my mother made sure that she texts to say, you know, I'm having hymen potatoes tomorrow night, and that as a young girl, they cooked the whole hog in a smoker. They probably cook it the same way. You should show the video. I want you to show the video. Yeah, I'm going to show the video. And see if it brings back some memories. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, pretty sure it's very similar. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure it is. And I'm going to show it to my family members. As You know, Howard and I go back, and we've talked a lot about um, our lineage and how my mother is from 
Terrell County, North Carolina, Columbia, North mm. Carolina. And I remember as we celebrate our family reunion this week, going into, you know, as we call it, going into the sticks. I mean, there was nothing. There was a, uh, this little enclave of houses, and everybody was related to each other. Our cousins and aunts and uncles. Like my home. Right. <laughs> it, we it, had that it, conversation. It, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, there was Uncle Dewitt and Aunt Callie down the road. Um, my grandmother had the house, and then my uh, Aunt Blanche and her husband and my cousin Reggie were uh, a couple blocks down the way. The church not was too far away. Yeah, the church was not away. not too far away, and we had cousins abound uh, throughout. And so that's where the family reunion would be. And there was always, you know, the fish fry was in the back of uh, Aunt Callie's house, <laughs> and and they had a dog named Ringo. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't realize that Ringo was like the Beatles. But what, did they really name that dog I, after the dog, I, I have no clue. I just really thought about that. Yeah, just, <laughs> it, it, I just really it, thought about it. That's the beautiful thing about food. It brings back all these pleasant memories. It does. It does It, it does bring back all these ple- pleasant memories. I think about my cousin Herman, who I've not seen probably in 20 years. Um, he's a couple years older than me, but we look like twins. Wow. Uh, he fortunately has hair, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I do not. And so... Moving it back into the space about your show and learning, you know, so much about your expert, your experiences with Leah Chase. What are the other aspects or what are the other aha moments that you've been able to get through the series? So you just get to learn for me, like I have a pretty thorough knowledge base on studying the American South. I've been studying it a long time. Uh, we're going to auctions across the South. My my grandfather was actually not too far from where your family is from, Rachel, and they were tobacco farmers. Mm-hmm. So I saw the, the spread from tobacco to cotton. I knew both of those cultures. Then we grew corn, grew sweet potatoes. So I saw that gamut. I, I used to spend time in tobacco houses when I go see my grandparents. Mm, right. I didn't do any work, but I used, to go, <laughs> I used to go see the bars and I see the crops. I see the truck farmers growing up. My grandfather used to grow watermelons and collards. Um, and so the things I'm learning about this food African-Americans have a lot of, uh, they contribute a lot more than most people really know to the American South. Mm. African-Americans and Native Americans, and if you follow the food journey, the products that we're eating, we don't really know how deep culturally they are. So uh, explain that. Go go down a little further like that. Give, give an example. So, I'm going to give you, so I went to this uh, grits mill company, and um, named Geechee Boy Mills in Charleston, and they had this Grit called Guinea Flint Grits. Hmm. Guinea Flint Grits. Yes. Okay. And um, I think the journey these grits went from, like, West Africa, went to Cuba. Somehow or not, I think it must be starting in South America because, like, grits is a corn, mm-hmm. and most exactly. of the corn started in South America on some kind of Indian community, indigenous community. And then went to Africa. Then it went to Cuba. Then it went back to Africa. And then it came over to the States. And wow. So, and so that was kind of like an aha moment. Or you seeing things such as like bootleggers keeping a variety of a corn. Yeah, let me explain what bootleggers please, are for my audience. Because the audience may not know what a bootlegger is. <laughs> I'm not going to say nothing. But a bootlegger is something who somebody who makes moonshine or transport moonshine. And so, Jazz. so sometimes you have these cultural practices mm-hmm. of like different grains that these bootleggers would keep growing to make their certain type of liquor. Right. So we everybody getting all in this uproar about Ernest 
nearest green from Jack Daniels, mm-hmm. but it's a lot more nearest green stories out there in the African American community. And we don't and, and, we don't, and we don't know who talk they, about and we don't we, know who they are. Well, we know who they are, but well, we can't talk about them. But why can't we talk about because them? Because that the was illegal. Well, That's, it was the culture. The culture won't talk about it. It was illegal. So the reason why Jazz and I are laughing at each other, and I raised my hand, is my uncle, my grandmother's brother-in-law, was chair of the deacon board, but also the moonshine king. He was where you got your corn liquor. <laughs> right, corn uh, liquor. Yeah, that's what it was. No, that's I, what we call. No, I'm saying if my father's listening, he knows because he'd be like, I'm gonna have to give so, me a shot of corn liquor. That right. was that yeah, was the that, thing. That's the same right, they say corn liquor or the stump hole. Yeah, and so so we laugh all the time. Hole? Because Jazz had a bad experience with some, oh yeah yeah some with some moonshine and I'm like that's because you're not supposed to drink it straight the first time you have it oh no you got to cut it with a little something now when you get grown like my family but that, but yeah so I know exactly what you're talking about he had his own little you know special corn that he used and and it was and that was your seal that was your mark that made your corn liquor uh, special right and that's the interesting thing going back to the family union you sat around drinking. Moonshine or corn liquor. They would call it corn liquor most of the time. Yeah. yeah. They yeah. call it moonshine. My cousin Reggie, my cousin Reggie would call it moonshine sometimes. I'm gonna see he was look. up and you trying to be sophisticated. <laughs> I don't know your cousin like that, but it looks Well, we also He's call it alpha. white. White lightning. <laughs> we called it white lightning. White lightning. So mm-hmm. that was, but that was a part of, again, I'm loving this conversation because it allows us really to talk about culture, right? And really, and how that is really gonna be in, in, embedded into this weekend mm. how my family and i haven't been to my family reunion in 25 years since i was in college mm. something has always come up every year so it'll be really interesting to see family members who you know when i was younger who are now my age who are now in their 60s and 70s but i do remember you know late at night you know with the um what are those bugs that you know um light up the, the lightning, the bug? lightning bugs Okay, lightning bugs. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't have to make me feel stupid like that, right? Um, Fireflies. Fi- thank you. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you. I w- thank you, Jazz. You're my man. Exactly. But Today. The, <laughs> the fireflies. But that was a part of who we were. And I remember that those were the good times of, of being in town. And my mother loved that aspect of going home. Oh. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the thing. I think how has that been a part of your journey you know, that, that feeling of going home. So, like, I'm from a really small place. And living in New Orleans is a little different. But no matter, like, for me to go home, I love it. I love it like it's nobody's business. But if I took you to my home, you're probably not going to like it besides the food being Because <laughs> it's slow. It's slow. But it's a way of life. It's a whole different way of life. So, like, when I go home now, I go back to get a recharge. Because for me, I get to eat the food that I'm accustomed to. But I also get to walk the same land that most of my family has walked because, sad to say, my family hasn't left, part of my family hasn't left the area where we, we were enslaved at. About five, it's like five miles away. Right. So when you think about, like, how much, how far your family has migrated, sometimes it's not that far. It's not that far. It's interesting. My mother and I still hold land in Terrell County, and nothing's really happened there. No. But you got to hold on to that land. Oh, yeah. We're not going to do anything with it. Got to hold yeah, on. That's a big thing. Like, And so living in New Orleans, and I see, like, gentrification going on, rural areas and urban areas, they have some of the same issues. They just look different because, like, rural areas, they losing black farms. And with the black farm, a culture is lost. Man. In the city area, Killing you have day, shotgun houses and doubles, and you have <clears throat> cultures being lost with those, too, because in those same houses, you have the people who create the second lines. The people who are the Mardi Gras Indians in the city. So it, they're the same issues. They just look a little different because of the landscape. We actually talked about this um, on when I saw you 
that an off camera that my grandfather owned one of the largest, what is now one of the largest and best golf courses in Myrtle Beach, California, uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. But the story of gentrification is one that we all knew because um, he got sick. He had to sell most of it off. And my great grandmother and my great aunt had two houses that were left, but they got taxed out and couldn't hold on to the houses. Right. And so this whole idea of gentrification the short-term rental conversation, they do that all over South Carolina. There are whole communities of condos that are specifically for short-term rental. And so our our communities along the East Coast, Southern East Coast, have seen this coming um, and didn't react to it. They didn't no, react to it, right. especially no. if you're talking about the Seattle, all along that coast, the, mm-hmm. where the Gullah, cause the Gullah community is all up and down the East Coast from right. South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. Mm-hmm. And you got areas like Hilton Head. Those yeah. areas... This is an area that was predominantly black. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize Hilton Head was predominantly black at one point. Wow, wow. No, and you're right. And my mother and I, we, we hold, hold on to the land, you know, and, and maybe, it's, maybe it's passed down to the next generation, you know, and something happens. But that culture, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck right now on the aspect of culture and how it, it, it comes out so much in our food and how people don't know the, the, the lineage. Like I said, I'm fascinated what you said that just uh, – a strain of grit, right? Yeah, a grit, right? Right. It's got to be grits. <laughs> one one grit is you know, grit. Charles might eat sugar on his grits. No, I eat sugar on my grits. No, no, so I don't. I don't I, actually, I don't like grits. What? No, but and I it's, mean, it's but, multiple uh, grits. But go ahead. Right. It's one grit. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. You know, there are certain things that I don't like because we. I, that's how I grew up. We grew up on grits. We grew up on. I don't eat black eyed peas. <gasps> Right, I don't. Right, I don't. I don't eat chitlins. I don't I, either. I, see, I mean, I eat them. But, but here's the thing. Here's the thing, and I know my mother's listening. We ate them all the time. All the all time. All the time. Right. It was a New Year's thing, and you, you know. So my no, mom, it was a Sunday thing for us to have right. Chitlins. And liver. I don't eat liver. I, I can't stand the smell either. of liver. No, I don't like the smell. No, of taste. but Man, you know, right. And once I figured out what chitter, 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 chitterlings, chitterlings <laughs> were, right, I was like, I'm not eating a hog intestine, right. <laughs> You know, but but my father, like my my father, New Year's Day used to eat chitterlings and black. It was tradition. It was culture, right? And so it was really interesting to you know we don't we haven't done that in decades, but that's a part of the culture. That's a part of the historical lineage that that you're trying to bring out with this journey. I I just want people to know their culture. I want you to like we got a now we have this whole big vegan movement and. You know, it's one of these things where I understand what you're doing as being a vegan, but you also need to understand your culture and understand the food ways that got you to being a vegan. Your ancestors were probably vegan at one point. Ms. Leah Chase said it, in the, it wasn't on the interview, but she said, I was a vegan before there was a vegan movement. <laughs> I, w- I, w- I was a vegan. I, I was a vegan before there was a vegan movement. I should have I done that. Uh, what I said we were going to do before the show. That's interesting because my mother and I talk about, you know, her health. And we talk about what we think is culture, what we think the things that are passed down may not have been the things that are passed down. And um, she talks about how my grandmother would have to go out to the uh, the garden. And that was fresh. That, that, that was, was organic. Fresh. That, that was, was fresh. That was fresh, organic. They right. canned stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. canned tomatoes, those stewed tomatoes taste like, if you can tomatoes, they taste just like you got them out the garden. Exactly. Um, canning okra, making pickles, canning peaches, canning pears, making fig preserves, making blackberry preserves, I mean, making jams, 
like preserving those things was really healthy. We got away from it because society has moved. Like my, when I talk to my parents about it, they, sometimes they realize they they grew up on a farm, but the convenience of going to the grocery mm-hmm. store to get a pack of pork chops was something they enjoyed because they didn't they, have to go out and kill the whole they pig. Had to go out and kill the whole pig. Right. <laughs> exactly. And that how, that convenience has. Maybe the word I want to say is led us astray. It has led us astray a little bit. Right. You listen to the West. Health as we could have. You listen to the What's a Revolution show on WBOK 1230 AM and WHIV 102.3. Sitting here with the good doctor, Howard Conyers, pit master, rocket scientist, and star of PBS Digital. His show, Nourish. As we move this conversation a little bit, what do you think people need to know? What What do you want people to gain from watching the full gamut of your show? I want them to understand, you see the food, but I really want you to understand that all people have an interesting culture. And if we take the time to sit down with one another, we could food is a gateway into understanding that person better. We may not all look alike. We may not all have the same beliefs. But I guarantee around the, the table, we have some of the same thing. We all want to fellowship around good food. Mm, you ain't lying. Uh, my good friend David Eman, former executive director over at Liberty's Kitchen would have um, the family table and he would bring in different chefs and it started out very small and by the by the end of uh, his sessions of doing the family table it was packed and each time there was this different food and different culture of food and I love the way that you said that it brings people together uh, I got to go to Rosh Hashanah dinner I got to go to Rosh Hashanah dinner a couple of years ago, um, and my my Jewish friends um, can really tell the story better about what Rosh Hashanah means. But one thing I I, I did if I go to any, if I go anywhere and I don't know the culture, I'm going to learn, right? And so there were certain dishes that were actually are served for Rosh Hashanah. Um, it's the Jewish New Year, and it was just very interesting to know going in what I was going to eat and having the historic the historical knowledge to understand that. And then being able to express that to um, the people who were hosting the party. Yeah, because so like now, I mean, I cook more than just pigs. I cook lambs for that reason. So, And I won't cook pork when I cook a lamb because I don't want them to have no confusion that I mix anything. I don't want them to know that I cook the lamb. And I'll go to the extreme with this lamb. I'll buy a halal lamb. They know okay. They make sure it goes through the process that they believe that makes it sanctified for consumption. Wow. And so that... I will go to that level to make sure that I'm able to feed all cultures. And, and that's the that, that's But it comes key. from understanding. Right. It comes from understanding. I think the importance of your show, right, and I think that we need to, you know, provide some gravitas to it. The importance of this show is that you get to show the world, particularly from a southern perspective, various cultures, right, various foods and the science behind it and how we can come together, right, particularly in a time where we have been – Torn apart. Let's just put it right there. You know, and you and I talk about that all the time, particularly at a time when we are being torn apart, how food and culture can bring us back together. I think that's the that's one of the important aspects of the show that you show how this we got to eat. And what what happens? What happens when you sit down to eat? Hey, we can solve problems. We can solve problems, <laughs> particularly if you have some parameters that we're not talking about this. We're not talking about that. We're just going to talk about this food. But sometimes it's good to talk, be an open table. I right. mean, food is painful when you look at the history of food. 
But you look at agriculture. America's history is built on pain of agriculture. Agriculture in and of itself is very exploitative. It was exploitative in the past. It's exploitative today. It may look different who's doing the work, but it's still exploitative. And so to better talk about food, you have to understand the pain that goes with it. No. um, I definitely understand because I think about the climate that we're in and the conversations that we're having around um, immigration. So I'm going to give you a story, Charles. And um, so sharecropping ended in like the 70s, right? Right. Blacks in the South, where I was from, we were still picking by hand, whether it was cotton. We was on the tail end of cotton and tobacco, still picking it by hand, right? And then so they had this crop, cucumbers. Cucumbers were kind of that that last, cucumbers and tomatoes were that last crop the African Americans were working their fields. And you could ask some of your cousins back from my neck of the woods if I'm mm-hmm. lying to do some fact checking, Rachel. <laughs> but then you start, they start bringing in Latinos to start picking the, the food crops. And so, like, now we've seen this immigrant issue. We should all be fighting this issue because we was just, our families were just there in those fields. Mm-hmm. Picking those crops, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, if they don't pick, they don't pick those crops, and they're not allowed to pick those crops. Our food prices are going to go up because the food is rotting on the vine. They're right. showing pictures of, of California now, where tomato crops are literally mm-hmm. rotting on the vine. There's right. actually an issue um, in Eastern Shore, Maryland. The Latinos have been the ones that have been the crab pickers, and because the number of visas has been uh, decreased, and they have not advanced to learn to recruit from Baltimore, the young black brothers that don't have a job, you're in this space where I don't know why they picked crabs. Right. And so it's it's you're right. It's gonna it's and, gonna and cost us. That's exactly what I was thinking about. That everybody needs to fight, but not even but and. Is it how do we get, you know, and, and Rachel does a wonderful job on her show really talking and unpacking, you know, these, these, you know, critical political issues. But from a food and culture perspective, you know, it is so vital for us to fight, you know, for fight for the right for em- people to be legally, you know, immigrants in our country because, you know, you think New Orleans was, re- New Orleans was rebuilt by who? Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you this is this is a story that's near and dear. I'm a, I have a PhD engineer, right? PhD engineer. When I was in getting my PhD, most of my classmates were from international countries. Mm-hmm. When they finished their degrees, they couldn't stay here because they couldn't get a visa. So we train them in the U.S. Mm-hmm. in these high tech fields. Not even talking about like picking cucumbers, which is not maybe high tech. I'm talking about like in engineering, computer sciences. They educate them in the United States. Can't get a job because they're not American citizens. So we got to send them back to their home country. And that's a, and so that's an even greater issue. You know, folks want to talk about illegal immigration, um, and there's a a cost thing that comes into the point of you know like the migrant worker. But the issue with um, and I don't remember the designation of that visa is that there's only five thousand visas that are given every year. It's like an H-1B, I think. Five thousand yeah. mm-hmm. of these visas every year, and they've not fixed that. And it's been that way I know for thirteen years at least. And so that's another part of this. Like, well, you're right. We're training folks and sending them back out, and, you know, resources are used and not returned. Yeah, not returned. The interesting thing about this, getting back to this food culture perspective, is that Latino culture has is so vibrant in our country. I mean, where, where was the uh, – uh, Homeland Security being harassed at a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. And so, but you you think about that, and so well, uh, we might be Latino when you think about diaspora. The diaspora intermingled, right? Well, and even take it further, the 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 child and family separation issue is now impacting 
the Haitian immigrants that were allowed to come here post-disaster, and now they're cutting them off. They have to be out by 2019. But their children, there's going to be another wave of this separation of families that impacts Haitian immigrants as well. Right. We've gotten all over the place. It, we have. <laughs> no, no, no. It, 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 it's all good. It, it all connected. It, it yeah. all connects. You know, our time is running short, Howard, and it always goes by fast when you've got a eloquent, you know, rocket scientist, pit bull, the pit barbecue, pit barbecue master, I mean, who just drops, you know, worldly knowledge to us. But Howard and I met uh, probably about seven or eight months ago. Uh, really? we're, we, yeah. Yeah, you think we actually, interestingly, last summer sat next to each other at a uh, a wisdom circle, Mm. Uh, right at the Takimura Center. You know, just this brother just sitting here talking. Oh, we're queer. Yeah, we're queer. Right, right, exactly. And didn't see each other after that until we started our mastermind group. And and what is what mastermind Nola is? It's ten of us, nine nine of us. um, of diverse backgrounds who live in the New Orleans area who come together once a month to really unpack our own stuff and to build each other up and then to build a a, a greater purpose for New Orleans and, and New Orleans and particularly for men of color. How has your experience been being a part of our group? My experience has been, been good because it, it lets you know that you're not the only one going through these issues and you even – and what I like about the group, we have a mixture of people from New Orleans and we have people who are not from New Orleans. Right, there, exactly. Since I've been here in New Orleans, there has been a thing that if you're not from New Orleans, you have to kind of earn your way into the community or mm-hmm. they still not, you're not, no matter how far you may earn your way into it, you're still not 100% in. Yeah. You don't have that school designation. Mm-hmm. You exactly. You didn't go into that neighborhood. But I like, I pay enough property taxes <laughs> in Orleans Parish to claim I'm here. But, hey. uh, but here and there, but that's been good to kind of see other people having some of the same issues, even in different fields. Right. Where you're going through, and also just to kind of be a support system. Yeah, and that's the wonderful thing. At our last meeting, was it was really interesting to, you know, hear one of the brothers talk about some of the the barriers that have been placed up in front of him, and then asking the question like, how many of you all have been or have gone through stuff like this? And most of the people in the group. And then the dialogue began to say, okay, how do we get through these things? How do we support you? How do we give you the things that you need to be, to get out of this place and to be successful? And that I think is a a, a wonderful thing for men of color is that there's a level of honesty and vulnerability that happens in our group. And we had to get there. We had to get there. Yeah, we definitely had to get there. And, there, you know, we all of us are strong-willed and strong personalities. But I think when people walk into the room, those strong personalities lessen, right? And there's ability to kind of listen and hear. No, and I think one of the things I think I'm excited is going to come out of this group, and we're still planning it. We're planning where we have something where we're looking at these black men of color mm-hmm. come together in a bigger way. I mean, you have, like, Essence just passed, and Essence is a very much a women's empowerment thing. But where's, where's I don't know, men? where's the men? Where's the men's empowerment? Exactly. Where's the exactly. men's side of Because they were here. They were here. Right. And so mm-hmm. if we could foster and create something like that in the men of color, community, right. particularly black men, it'll be a powerful thing. A powerful thing. And we you know, and that's one of the things and we don't wanna we don't wanna spill it out right now, but that's one of the things I just we, wanna put it out just, yeah, yeah. just a teaser. Yeah, but just a just teaser for what Mastermind Nola has coming for the early, early fall is that conversation about men's empowerment. We need that. And 
what happened, what I think what happens is that older, the older generation is like, you know, I'm good. You're not good, brothers. <laughs> right? I promise you. 47. You're not good. We all got stuff. We all got things that we're dealing with. We all got issues. And we all can find and embrace the healthiest versions of ourselves. I think one of the greatest things about Mastermind NOLA is that we're very diverse. You know, there's, there's you know, early 30s to me. <laughs> Am I the oldest person in the group? Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm the oldest person in the group. Close to it. You yeah. look like the oldest person in the group. Man, I, I, was, I was about to say your she daddy, <laughs> but I didn't say it. Yeah, be glad you didn't. <laughs> See, you want to clown me. That's, but that goes way back to the culture. Hey, it's <laughs> not me. If Wilbur's listening, you better watch your back. <laughs> uh, hey, Daddy Graham, how you doing? <laughs> what did he say yesterday about don't call daddy? Him, and don't made. call him daddy unless I put a ring on unless it. Unless you put a ring on it. Right. I'm not I'm not a ring giver. Clearly. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I've only given a ring once, and she deserved it. I think it's time that we wrap up our show. <laughs> this is devolving quickly. It is. No, but that's the great thing about, you know, being a part of a, a wonderful group of men. You can you can you can go to heights that maybe you couldn't go before. And I am fortunate to know that this brother right here, who's the star of Nourish, uh, who's a rocket scientist, who's a huge supporter. Uh, of me and I'm a huge supporter of him anything that this brother is doing I'm trying to make sure that everybody knows brother. no man that's what we have to do as men of color we have to support everything that we're doing brother and I'm so proud of the work that you're doing you know and I'm a I'm a huge huge fan um you, you want to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to remind you to tell people what's going to happen next week, but I couldn't type it fast enough. I have no clue what's happening next week. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> hey, too much going on. So, thanks, Howard. Next week, we'll have the barbershop conversation, but guess what? The, the bros. <laughs> the bros, the Omegas will be in town next week. We will have the Vice Grand Boss List. Uh, Brother Terrence Aguilar, who is the chairman of the uh, uh, the National Conclave that will be bringing a host of Omega men to the city of New Orleans. So check us out as we talk about Omega's role in mental health and leadership across the country. We thank you for listening. You've been listening to the What's Your Revolution show with Rachel and Howard, and we will see you next week and always be able to answer the most thought-provoking question of your life. We'll see you soon, everybody. Take care. Peace. Let's talk revolution.